Welcome to the Core Principles Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll enjoy this lively discussion of relevant topics, which we attempt to examine through the lens of unchanging objective truth. Here's the host of the Core Principles Podcast, Clay Howerton. Thank you, Suzanne. Welcome to the 100th episode of Core Principles. Because this is such a special episode, I'm honored to have such a special guest as I have today. Dick Morris is a best-selling author, an exceptional commentator on vital issues, and he's got a new book titled The Return, Trump's Big 2024 Comeback. Welcome to the program, Dick Morris. How are you doing? It's good to be here. Well, thank you. I listened to the audiobook version of The Return because well, you- I read that myself. Yes, sir. You read it yourself, yeah. and I saw that on Audible and said, that's the way I'm going to get it. And I recommend uh, to our listeners, that is a great way to get it. Uh, As I was doing the Audible, I added some stuff that wasn't in the book. I figured the author wouldn't mind. I did want to start today where you started in the the book and just let you know that I am lifting Eileen up in prayer. You and Eileen have written many best-selling books, uh, important books together. Uh, I want to mention two of them because they tie into this new book, The Return. She had a stroke a year and a half ago and it impaired her tremendously, but she's still with us, thank God. Yes, sir. And as I as I say, I'm definitely lifting her up in prayer and, and you as well. Uh, Thankful for the uh, works that you all have done together as well. And two of those that I think tie in to the return. In 2016, you wrote Armageddon, How Trump Can Beat Hillary. And the following year, you wrote Rogue Spooks, The Intelligence War Against Donald Trump. So I ask you, Dick Morris, how did you foresee the Trump victory over Hillary? Well, the Trump victory over Hillary was one was more my book. The Rogue Spooks was more Eileen's. Uh, <clears throat> once Steve Ducey on Fox and Friends asked me, what's it like writing a book with your wife? And I said, well, most people assume that, you know, I do the writing, she does the research, but that's not how it works. We divide it in half. She writes and researches her half. I do mine and then we swap. And Steve said, does she ever say, honey, I love you, but this isn't much good? I said, well, Steve, she skips the first part. Oh. <laughs> um, the, uh, the Trump v. Hillary, I knew Hillary well and I knew Trump well. Uh, my father was Trump's lawyer, actually. And uh, I <clears throat> knew that Hillary, I, I realized that Trump had discovered a new ethnic group in the United States, working class people who lived in flyover country and they had been shunted aside, neglected, and he discovered them. He empowered them. Hillary enraged them by calling them deplorables. And uh, I felt that that would sweep the election. And it did. Um, Rogue Spooks, my wife, um, Eileen, wrote that. We published it, which means she wrote it three months before in January of 17. And she went through the dossier. Uh, that, that had been produced largely by the Hillary campaign that encapsulated the, the collusion that they claimed had taken place. And she realized that it was impossible. It couldn't be true. And then she gave a phone call to Michael Cohn, who's since been in jail and was Trump's one of Trump's key legal advisors. And uh, he was an old friend of mine. And Eileen said to him, have you ever been to Prague? which is where the meeting took place for this collusion. And he said, no, I haven't. And he said, in fact, 
Trump called me and asked me if I'd been to Prague. And I said, no. And he said, can you come by my office and give me your passport? And I did. And there was no entry for Prague. So when I, Trump heard that and when Eileen heard that, we both knew the dossier was absolutely phony. And that led to the publication of the book Rogue Spooks and everything in there has come true. Yes, sir. And been validated a thousand percent. Well, I do hope that we'll have time at the end of the episode briefly to talk about that part of the topic because the the intelligence war against Donald Trump has gone nuclear, so to speak. But I do want to dive into your fascinating and best-selling new book, The Return. Listeners, buy this book. Uh, It's deeper and richer than we can possibly detail on the podcast. Uh, And every- Trump said it best, I think. He said, uh, endorsing the book, he said it is, um, it's a fascinating account fascinating analysis of events that are likely to occur in the not too distant future, which is great because what I do is that I talk about all the stuff the Democrats are going to throw at Trump. And it's kind of a roadmap for his survival and for our survival as they do that. And I'm gratified that um, he's surviving nicely using that plan. I'm disheartened that the Democrats have exceeded even my expectations (laughs) as to what they throw at him. Well, hold on, sir, because they're going to do a lot worse, as you, I'm sure, will not be surprised. But I appreciate, Dick Morris, how you focused much of the book on these particular issues that the Democrats have chosen to pursue and how those should be their undoing with a lot of American voters. I want to ask you about a few of those. And first off, I want to ask you about what you call the Democrats' war on small business. Could you explain how their so-called pro-act is a Democrat disaster? Clay, I love this interview. You're one of the only people that's actually read the book that interviews me. The um, Democrats introduced the PRO Act, uh, permission to, um, PRO, I forget what it stands for. To organize. The, the concept behind it is that millions, tens of millions of Americans have avoided unionization and avoided the regulations and rules of the government by being independent entrepreneurs, solo contractors, working for themselves. About a quarter of our labor force does that. And the unions are desperate to get their hands on them because they want those union dues. And they, uh, so in California, they passed. And in the Senate, they, in the Congress, they proposed, but we killed it. A national law that required everybody to work for an employer. You're not allowed to be out there on your own. The, the definition that the IRS would promulgate under this act is that if you produced or did anything in your job as a contractor that you would do as an employee, you couldn't do it. So, for example, if you were a videographer and uh, you uh, shot videos for a company uh, and you were an independent contractor, but your trade was a videographer, you couldn't work. You had to be an employee. On the other hand, if you swept the floors, you could <laughs> because that wasn't your job. And uh, it would it would have forced and California is forcing tens of millions of people to go to work for companies, usually at a lower pay scale, subject to all of withholding and regulations and tax treatment that you have when you're an employee. And the goal of it is that it's to force you into an employer and then into a union. Because at the same time, it eliminates the secret ballot protection against forced unionization. 
Right now what happens is that people check off on a card saying, yeah, I want a union. And for majority check that, the NLRB holds the union election on a secret ballot. What this, and two-thirds of the time, a third of the time, the union loses, even though the majority has requested the election. And uh, under the new PRO Act, the checking of the cards itself would be enough to form a union, and there would be no need for an election, a Soviet-style election. So this is an effort by organized labor to take tens of millions of people and force them into unions. It also repeals the right-to-work laws of over 20 states that make it illegal to require someone to join a union in order to hold a job. It overrides those states and requires that. This was the chief legislative goal of organized labor, and Biden was slavishly subservient to it. We beat it in the Senate, thank God. Uh, but if we lose Congress, they're going to be right back there pushing it, and Biden will sign it in a heartbeat. But we are going to win Congress. And I would say that it's also, to me, just as an outsider looking in, it seems like a money laundering scheme because we know where the vast majority of those Democrat dues, I mean, the the union dues go to the Democrat Party. Are you an employee? I am uh, self-employed as part of a… Uh, so you couldn't do this. Right. I, I'm a they consultant for a charitable foundation. You uh, either work for them as an employee on the books with withholding with uh, all of the all of the requirements, or you can't work. Right. And I suppose I could say that would help me tax-wise because I have to pay double on Social Security, but I like it the way it is now. Well, another aspect of the Democrats' war on small businesses is their desired tax scheme that would take the inherited businesses away from most families and merge them into larger corporations. Could you explain, Dick Morris, how this would be even worse than the so-called death tax that preceded it? Well, this all goes back to the capital gains tax. And the theory of the capital gains tax is that if you sell a house or a business or a farm or your home, uh, you make a profit from it. Uh, you bought it for $100,000 and you sell it for 200000 And that extra hundred that you make as a profit is not subject to ordinary income tax at 37%. It's subject to a special capital gains tax at 20%, which is unjust because you paid tax on the first hundred you invested, but still it's, it's the law. What the Democrats want to do is to force people to pay that tax when they die, force the estate to pay it. So that if you are a small businessman and you bought the business, you put the business for 100,000 and now it's worth 200,000 and you leave it to your heirs, your heirs have to pay the capital gains tax on the extra hundred that you made as if you sold it, but you didn't sell it. And the problem is because you didn't sell it, you don't have the money from the sale. So how are your heirs going to pay for it when they don't have the money? The answer is they're not. They're going to give it up. The government will take it over and it'll then be auctioned off usually to a large corporation that always wanted your land, always wanted your farm, always wanted to put you out of business. And it's a horrible scheme. It's modeled after what Britain did after World War II when they implemented a socialist system. And they took all of their landowners who have these big baronial estates and required them to do that. It's one thing for that. But in America, we don't have them. There are small mom and pop stores, a family farm, uh, a, uh, a cottage industry, and now, now and, a, a, and a home. 
And now you're going to have to pay the capital gains tax on it when you die. Insidious, I would call that. Uh, You highlight in your book, The Return, several ways that the Democrats are out of touch. I'm going to gloss over those real quick and try to change gears uh, into another huge topic. But some of the ways you highlight, the Democrats are out of touch with Hispanic Americans on immigration, out of touch with parents on education, out of touch with African American families on crime and policing, and out of touch with just about everybody on free speech. But this other big issue that you bring up in The Return is how we deal with China. Now, after the way that President Trump successfully dealt with China, why is Biden's way dangerous for America? Well, first of all, we have to understand China's goal. It is not it's not merely territorial enlargement. There's some of that. They want Taiwan. They took Hong Kong. They took Macau. But the main thing they want is intellectual control of the world. And their concept there is to apply the same system globally that they have in China, where they monitor all internet transactions and all internet conversations. And if they indicate that you are running afoul of the party line, you're disagreeing with the government, they give you a social acceptability score. It's just like credit rating. Just like every time we don't pay a debt, our credit rating goes down. Every time you say something the government doesn't like, your social acceptability score drops. And your social acceptability score is the key to being able to get a good job, a good house, being allowed to fly, being allowed to go on trains, all kinds of stuff in the society. Well, that's terrible for China, but that's China. What they want to do is to do it globally. And the idea is that they have this company, Huawei, who uh, is making the 5G systems to be installed around the world. And with the 5G systems comes the reporting that the Chinese intel needs to set up a social acceptability score for each of us. And the idea is that we would then have that score based on what we say in our transactions. I, for example, would be, Zelton John said, too low for zero. (laughs) (laughs) And, And people would get a social score. And then China is a the owner of over 2,400 major U.S. companies, including some ones you'd never imagine. And uh, they're getting yet many, many more. And their concept is that they could then use their power in the private sector to punish those with low social acceptability scores. And they could do this even without sending in an army or taking us over. They could just do it through high tech. Now, Trump realized this, very few people did, and he, uh, he, he stopped Britain from using the Huawei system, stopped other countries from doing it, and then eventually locked up the uh, daughter of the founder of Huawei, who was in charge of this imperialist effort, and he locked her up on charges that she was violating our sanctions against Iran. She was in Canada, and we put her in cuffs. First thing Biden did in the opening weeks of his presidency was to let her out of jail. And now she's free to do this stuff again. And by the way, let me say this about China. People are looking at Hunter Biden's laptop, which is worth it and very important. But they're missing another point. When Trump, when Biden became relinquished office as vice president and went into the private sector, He set up the Biden Institute for Peace and Diplomacy at the University of Pennsylvania. And he started it with a $22 million seed grant from the government of China. 
and the and, and an anonymous contribution from the Chinese. It, it was from China, but they wouldn't say who, but it was the Chinese government. And since then, they've received tens, almost hundreds of millions of dollars from China for this entity. And it was Joe Biden's employer and also um, uh, Bill, Blinken's employer, the Secretary of State. Uh, Blinken was the executive director of this institute, and Biden made a million dollars a year from this institute. It supported him during the years of out of office before he became president and after he left as vice president. So we have a president who literally was on the payroll of China in the interim. Incredible, but totally believable given the things that he's doing. I want to add a comment or two about what you just said, Dick Morris, before we get into this next question. But listeners, if you've been with Core Principles all along, you've heard about this Chinese scheme for social acceptability score all the way back in the summer of 2020 when I interviewed Rod Dreher about his book, Live Not By Lies. Uh, it's been in the works for a long time. It's something that they do and do not imagine it cannot happen here. If you recall, Biden's instinct was set up Department of Homeland Security to have a disinformation board and shut you up if they don't like what you're saying. So it could happen here. Well, we do have a moment, Dick Morris, to get into what I hinted at at the beginning of the episode. I'd like to ask you about the intelligence war on Donald Trump. Given the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago and the push for the director of national intelligence to try to convince uninformed citizens that there could have been some national security concerns over these uh, declassification and removal of personal copies of certain documents. What can you tell us about how these matters may impact us, how they may affect the political landscape or any of those things? Well, perhaps you give me a minute, Clay, to explain the overall context. Here. Absolutely. Yes, sir. This is the first time since 1892, and the only other time in American history, that two presidents have run against each other, you know, Biden and Trump. And the inevitable way to compare them is to compare their two records as president. But Biden's is so incomparably terrible and Trump's so good that Biden understands he can't do that comparison. So what he's trying to do is to run against Donald Trump, not President Trump. And he's willing to make it Joe versus Donald rather than President Biden versus President Trump. And to do that, his strategy is to force Trump to become the issue in the campaign. In political campaigns, voters have only one issue, one, one focus at a time. In 2016, nobody heard the word Trump. It was all Hillary. In 2020, nobody heard the word Biden. It was all Trump. And since Biden has taken office, nobody's heard Trump except for the rallies. It's all been Biden. So what he's trying to do is to flip it and make this all about Trump. And the Mar-a-Lago raid was the first part of it. His speech last week about mega, um, mega subversion, of the MAGA subversion of this country was the second step. And the third step, I believe, will be an indictment of Donald Trump on charges of not returning the archives. Now, this is essentially an indictment for not giving back a library book <laughs> because the archives are really a library and the librarian's nose is out of joint because a couple of the documents have gone missing. And there's no national security implication. Nobody alleges that any secrets were given to the Russians. The most they can say is some of the documents contain secrets, but there's no allegation of a leak. 
but they will be doing that and doing the stuff they did to make Trump the issue. And the goal in this is not to defeat him at the polls. They know they can't do that. But to goad Republicans into saying, you know, I want to win the election of 24. The whole world hinges on it. Why do we want to have to have a candidate with this kind of baggage running in the election? Let's get someone who doesn't have the baggage, but has the core ideology like Ron DeSantis or Mike Pence. And the problem is that if that happened, if they ever got into the race, Trump would not relinquish his territory gladly. Uh, he was cheated out of 2020 by ballot fraud. And now he's going to be cheated out of 2024 by a phony indictment for a ridiculous crime. So he'll fight it. And the Trump DeSantis or the Trump Pence primary that would eventuate will be horrific, tearing the party apart, blood all over the place and doom our chances of winning in 2024. And that is the Democratic strategy. That is how they hope to defeat Trump, not to make him ineligible to run. They've despaired of that, but to make him so radioactive and so toxic that Republicans turn on him and say, we want the clean, fresh alternative in this race and therefore foment a civil war. I don't see them succeeding at that, Dick Morris, based on the things like Wilkes-Barre the last night and uh, or two nights ago and uh, just the the way that people are rallying around President Trump as yep. these things get more outrageous against him. I do want to say one thing to listeners about the security concerns. Uh, I was career military. I had beyond top secret SCI clearances. I understand uh, these things somewhat. President Trump had what is known as OCA, Original Classification Authority. It is not possible for him to have mishandled classified information. Furthermore, uh, he had a SCIF, Secure Compartmentalized Information Facility, which is where these secrets can be kept securely and not be vulnerable to anyone at Mar-a-Lago. Furthermore, he has constant Secret Service protection. So, there were no vulnerabilities, as Dick Morris pointed out, and that's one of the reasons why. They were always secure, not at all like Hillary Clinton's server in her basement that China hacked. We have to, make, we have to draw the metaphor between that and papal infallibility. <laughs> Trump could not have mishandled classified because he was the classifier. Yes, sir. Uh, I'll, I'll leave that uh, for Catholic theologists to say whether that, uh, that lines up, but... Uh, <laughs> Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, Dick Morrison. I'm so thankful that you had the opportunity uh, to write this book and that you took it and that I had the opportunity and the honor to speak with you on Core Principles. Uh, I have done almost 300 interviews about the return, and this so far is the best one. Well, thank you, sir. I'm, I'm very thankful for that. It's very gracious. Listeners, buy Dick Morris's book, The Return. It's got a lot more, and it's all great. You want this. Uh, thank you, and God bless you. Bless you. Thank you, and thank you for your prayers, friendly. Core Principles Podcast is produced in Paducah, Kentucky by Real Productions. Music is by Late July, L-E-I-G-H-T July. You can find our music on all streaming services or at latejuly.com. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Core Principles Podcast. Please visit core.buzzsprout.com for more information and please share with your friends. We look forward to visiting with you again on our next episode.